Hello, hello, and welcome to Art Pop Talk. I'm Bianca. And I'm Gianna. We are so excited for today's episode. We have our first guest since returning from summer break, and you all are going to absolutely love her. This conversation was so juicy. I was drooling. So today we are joined by the brilliant Daria Foner, who is talking with us about Belle da Costa Green, one of the first women to direct a major museum in the US. And she will tell you all about that. And on top of that, we get a little insider scoop to one of the art world's most renowned auction houses. Without further ado, let's Art Pop Talk. Ooh, Gianna, this was such a good conversation. I cannot wait for everyone to hear it. At the end of today's interview with Daria, we did ask her about Beyonce's renaissance, and soon you will, you will understand why. It was the perfect question to ask her. So, Gianna, can we talk about it now? Yes. <laughs> we, we say hesitantly. If, if you wish. Um, I haven't really done a deep dive on the album. My experience with it has been listening to it while spreadsheeting. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. And try not to let my corporate job break my soul. Ooh. Same. I, I'm very, just want to preface this with like, this is very surface level initial thoughts. Also, I, am I I'm, am I missing something? Like we just haven't gotten a ton of one visuals yet. Obviously she's been posting about it on Instagram a little. We definitely uh, obviously have that cover art that we kind of mentioned last week with those equestrian vibes. And we're but, definitely, yeah, like we're still getting some equestrian equestrian imagery a lot of that has been kind of like appropriated and kind of used in a couple different ways but mm-hmm. mostly what we're getting is like the disco glam aspect which we yeah. know that this is definitely a dance album right right so i would love to talk about it with you but uh, you know we uh, we're never definitive here on apt and if more comes out or we get a music video, I would uh, love to do a compare and contrast uh, because I have some thoughts I have some and thoughts. I'm scared to share my thoughts and I don't like that. Okay. But I feel real nervous. So I, Bianca told me that she was nervous to share her thoughts about this and it really reminded me of an SNL skit from probably like five years ago where they are there's this scene and everybody's at a dinner table and they're talking about Beyonce and, and this one guy at the dinner table was like oh you know yeah like I, I like her I don't like I don't know whatever and they were like what do you mean he was like yeah you know I like her I just like I don't like love Beyonce that everyone's like we know what you did like we know what you've done like get out of my house and like the dinner party escalates and then like the police come and get him because he says that he didn't like he didn't like absolutely love Beyonce and so like we all know like it's like hard to say bad things about Beyonce or to to criticize or you know have yeah. your own opinion when it comes to her music because or her like it, it's or just her. her music is her and and like I just I I feel nervous but uh, I feel also inspired and uh, 
a little bit brave because I did get to talk with some of my friends about it this past weekend. And one of my girlfriends was like, I'm just really tired of Beyonce having this goddess component where she's untouchable. And it was kind of like, cause somebody get the police, you know, <laughs> like, like, oh, oh, we oh, can't oh, say oh. that, you know, but then we started like opening up about like, our, our true feelings on this album. It's like dipping your toes in the water when you're like, how do you feel about this coworker? And then you like, see if you guys are on the same page about like thinking that this person is annoying. It's Ooh, like, what's going on at work, Jim? <laughs> But you know what I'm talking about. It's like, oh, yeah, so-and-so said this. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, mm-hmm. And then, like, slowly you find your work bestie. Like, <laughs> totally. Oh, my gosh. That is so funny. It it does it does feel like that. Like, you're, you're scared. And you guys are going to be, like, so sick of it. And I, I'm, I'm already upset with myself for doing it. But, like, I'm right about this. <laughs> and I just need you to say what you're going to say. Go for it. Gaga did it first. Yeah. Gaga did it first. And I am in the thick of it. Whew. My heart is racing. I'm uncontrollable and I'm twitchy. And I am having trouble concentrating because in 24 hours from Gianna and I recording this, I will be at the Chromatica Ball. And so I've been listening to, obviously, the set list Lady Gaga deep dive on Spotify, which I told you guys is the greatest thing to ever happen to me. It's fantastic. So I've been listening to the set list with Renaissance at the same time, like going back and forth between the two. And I was in the office um, for a couple days last week and I was listening to the album, the set list, the album, the set list, like back to back. And when you think about it, it's so wild that Chromatica came out two plus years ago. And here we are now getting this Beyonce dance album. And we also had, you know, Drake try to do that album. And I saw some tweets like, this Beyonce album is what Drake tried to do. I'm like, this is what Lady Gaga did two years ago. Like, do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so we did talk about the concept of chromatica and how constructing different fictitious realms like your mind palace what have you Mm -hmm. was definitely a trend that yes with doji i feel as though (laughs) gaga helped to kind of originate and then we saw a lot of other contemporary Mm -hmm. artists on the same vein as gaga like um doja and little nas Mm -hmm. um try to also do themselves yeah Mm -hmm. in a way you know what's funny about me what's funny about you i love pop music (laughs) like i by no means have like a great take or i don't have great taste in like music i feel like i like to listen to a lot of stuff but at the end of the day i love a bop i am a na 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 girl you know what i mean Mm. like they always say Mm. like love a good na 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 like a pop song isn't a pop song without like a na 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 that's all I'm gonna say. Like, I give into it. I love a bop. But I am not, like, super duper into electronica music, which makes me a very interesting kind of gaga stan. Mm. In the sense, like, I love the way that she uses it. But if you listen to, like, explicitly electronica music, like, it's not for me. Mm-hmm. Like, I love how she incorporates it with dance and with words like Mm -hmm. I don't like music with no words Mm. 
I feel as though I got a little bit of that with Renaissance. Like there's like a lot of repetition in -hmm. terms of it being a dance album. And I'm like, oh, I can get that at the club. But I don't know about you guys. I get like so annoyed when I'm dancing to things and I have nothing to sing to. I'm not that kind of dancer. (laughs) So when things just start getting super repetitive for that long of time, Mm -hmm. I particularly lose interest. But also like I'm not really listening to this music and the context that it deserves to be listened to. Like, we also came across with the same thing with Chromatica because we were in the pandemic and we couldn't go to the club. Mm. Things are different. I'm hoping in, like, you know, three, four weeks, I'll actually be able to go to the club for a little APT birthday. Hell yeah, we should find a renaissance night and see how it holds up. I'm curious. I mean, I really do hope that, like, we do get a a recent Beyonce song because I I don't go to the club that often these days, folks. So it's a it's a rare occasion. Right. But I also, to your point, Break My Soul is not my favorite song on the album. I actually am finding that I like it more within the album itself. I like the way that it's situated in there. Also, I mean, we love a good transition. We are here for these transitions. <clears throat> Chromatica's one, two, and three. Um but break my soul for being this single is not it's just not my favorite i hope that's not the one that we like continue to get in the in the club cuff it is fucking fantastic pure honey obviously summer renaissance uh thick church girls church girls they're great yeah they're for me really every single song on this album is so good and when i listen to it i feel like fucking fired up but then when i step back and i take myself out of that headspace which which i'm not sure she's asking us to do you know what i mean Mm -hmm. but for me it's like it feels very forced and i feel like there's a forced kind of context of gay culture obviously ball culture And there's something that when I try to evaluate it like that, it's it's not driving with me. I don't know if that makes sense, Gianna. But again, like I'm not sure I'm supposed to be doing that. But when when I when I do step back, I'm like, oh, this is this just feels very, very forced. I don't know another way to to put it. Some of the songs. And I I think your feelings about that are okay because you have a very different lived experience. And what I'll say about that is I think that there's a lot of history in this album, particularly to like the culture of black music and also to Beyonce's personal life. Yes. I am not a like, obviously we understand this is a Lady Gaga stand podcast. We get it. <laughs> but there's a lot just about her personal life and her history that I am I don't know about not and privy so to. yes not privy to but kind of going on social media and, and conversing with some of my very hardcore Beyonce stands I know that there's a lot of this that's interesting in terms of Cajun music and mm-hmm. like paying homage to like her Cajun roots and that's all that I can say about that I am like super not knowledgeable mm-hmm. but I think there's a reason why you're experiencing a disconnect is because there is very clearly a lot of undertones happening here like and so that's okay that you're experiencing that disconnect yeah and i i uh some of my friends were talking about an homage to i think her 
uncle yeah who was gay um that like not trying to spread false information just in conversations with people about the album which which i am totally here for and again it's not that i every song when i listen to it i'm like i can get like fucked up to this whole album but it's just there's there's something about it that that's not hitting as the strongest composition of beyonce it does it doesn't feel like her but i'm not her like to your point like how am i supposed to know anything about who beyonce actually is i am just a spectator in the usual ways of her as a celebrity giving us her expressions in a given point in her life but it's just there's something there that's like Mm -hmm. gnawing at me but it's like i recognize fully to be kind of i guess to play like devil's advocate a little bit i i'm interested what this is going to do in a kind of resurgence of disco which we have been seeing a lot just in terms of like our infatuation with abba Mm -hmm. over the pandemic has just skyrocketed but there is like a super weird um halsey someone else song it's like a collab that's very like sounds very breathy and very disco Mm. also my goodness olivia newton john who truly is just an enigma because i feel like if you (laughs) i always find her albums like in consignment shops or uh interesting vintage shops and you can find her music under like disco under mm. pop under mm-hmm. country mm-hmm. i feel like she's just everything and i don't know there is like a moment that like we're experiencing where i feel like artists are really looking at a full scope of music heritage and also right. like personal identity and like going for it so like right. it's just a lot to unpack and it's super fascinating and i i and so in love with this mishmash of things that are happening and i think it's fantastic and that's again like i i promise you one million thousand percent there is no way i am here trying to like compare gaga and beyonce it's just so topical for me at this moment and listening back to chromatica with things like babylon with enigma like we are getting this like very present very influential what you're talking speaking to to these like musical transitions to the creation of kind of another world we've had all this time to see the effects of chromatica i'll be Mm -hmm. interested to see the effects of renaissance because i'll just be keeping an eye on kind of more of the disco trends and the influence but i Mm -hmm. think also what we're describing is i think pop music is getting very complicated i think Mm -hmm. that this is a little bit of a turning point and i think our brains are used to also absorbing the na 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 music and things are changing a little bit and we have to get used to consuming that um Mm -hmm. something to think about yeah absolutely excellent chitty chatty we could keep (sighs) chitty chatting about this for a while obviously but i'm so glad thank you for giving me the opportunity to um let my feelings out i really appreciate it you're so welcome i'm such a gracious co-host oh my god you really are (laughs) but we can't be too selfish right now because we have an amazing special guest jenna will you tell everyone all about her Absolutely. So today we are joined by Daria Foner. Daria is an art historian and native New Yorker. She completed her PhD at Columbia University, where her dissertation, Collaborative Endeavors in the Career of Andrea Del Sarto, focused on the creative practices of 16th century Florentine visual and performing arts. 
Prior to joining the Sotheby's Old Master Paintings Department, she worked at the Morgan Library and Museum in New York. She previously held curatorial positions at the Metropolitan Museum of Art and the Frick Collection and contributed to exhibitions at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum and Columbia University's Wallach Gallery. She received her BA from Princeton University and her master's in philosophy from the University of Cambridge and has lectured publicly and presented at academic conferences in the United States, the United Kingdom, Canada, and France. Prior to attending Princeton, Daria was a member of the Norwegian National Ballet. So she is everything and she's really incredible and we're so excited for you all to get to meet her and join this little discussion. So we are going to take a little break and when we come back, we'll be joined by Daria Thoner. everybody welcome back to the show daria thank you so much for being here with us we're so excited to have you you must tell us a little bit about yourself tell us how you entered the field of art history and also a little bit about your primary research focus well first let me just say that it is a pleasure to be speaking with you both and thank you for having me as a guest on the podcast I can't really remember a time when the arts weren't a part of my life. When I was growing up, I was a very serious ballet dancer. Um, my grandmother was a painter, and I would often go to museums with her when I was very, very young. And so studying the arts was something that was sort of just very natural to me. It was part of my life from the very beginning. and. When I was in college, I started, I began studying art history. I spent a semester in Florence doing study abroad. When I graduated, I spent a year at Cambridge. Um, and then I came back to the United States and did my PhD at Columbia, where I focused on the Italian Renaissance and wrote my dissertation on the 16th century Florentine painter, Andrea del Sarto. You know, I love a good art historical family. I feel like <laughs> Bianca and I talk about that so much. Like, it's not coincidental that her and I have <laughs> entered the same field. Like, this is not a coincidence, folks. Like, the bias <laughs> of our household was very strong. <laughs> we were uh, my, very <laughs> my father is an American historian, and my mother is a dance historian. And I like to think of That's art awesome. history as sort of the meeting of those two in the middle, you know, it, it like brings, or at least the type of art history that I really, that I find, you know, most appealing and most exciting is sort of very much like a cultural history. And so it really is a nice marriage between those two disciplines. What a yeah. freaking romantic story. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> that speaks to what Gianna and I talk about broadly what art history can be in general are all of these different things coming together and it's not the kind of traditional two-dimensional 
you know, aspect that you get in a very kind of dated Western art history class, but it's all of these different fields coming together. And we love a romantic art history story. (laughs) Oh my gosh. What a lovely way to start. So I had the pleasure of getting a sneak peek of this story a few weeks ago, which is how you got invited to be on the podcast. Um, And you have just spoken to your fascinating background in the field. You have worked at the Met, the Frick, you have a background at the Morgan Library, obviously. And I am so excited for you to share this amazing story um, about your research on Belle da Costa Green. And we would just love it if you could share this with us. Absolutely. So as Bianca, as you just said, I was at the Morgan Library and Museum for three years. I was the research associate to the director, and I got to work on a lot of sort of institution, institutional projects, um, initiatives having to do with the early history of the institution, its inception, the construction of the McKim Mead and White Library, the sort of architectural heart of the Morgan even today. And I one of the most compelling projects I worked on while I was there had to do with the Morgan's first director, a woman named Belle da Costa Green. She was the director of the Morgan for over 20 years, and she was really a powerful force uh, in her own right. And during the pandemic, when we were all working off-site, I became one of the two directors of the of a, 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 a very large-scale transcription project. And part of the idea behind the project was that we would be able to involve people from many different departments in the museum, people who really couldn't work off-site. So this would enable them to you know, continue to be employed. So people, for instance, in visitor services. You know, if there are no visitors and the museum is closed, it's difficult to keep people in visitor services um, employed. And so we worked with a lot of people in visitor services and departments like that. And basically, we trained them and began this transcription project. And we were working to transcribe the 600 plus letters that Belle de Costa Green wrote to her sometime paramour, Bernard Berenson, who himself was a very important 20th century Italian Renaissance art historian. And this project sort of led me down a wonderful research pathways into Belle da Costa Green and particularly into her early life and education. So sorry if you hear the little dog in the background. That's my dog, Quincy, who just wants everybody to know that she's here too. So I became very interested in Belle da Costa Green. Within the last year, there have been two fictional accounts of her life published. So there has been sort of renewed attention brought to her life and brought to her successes and achievements. Um, but when we began the project, none of those you know, were out. And there is one biography that was written about her in 2007, An Illuminated Life. but. A lot of her background 
there were a lot of questions that remained. And part of that was by her own design, she oftentimes purposely obfuscated her early life or aspects of it and the ephemerality of the historical record. So Belle de Costa Green was born in 1879 in Washington, D.C. to Genevieve Ida Fleet and Richard T. Greener, who were both very light-skinned African-Americans. Richard T. Greener was a prominent public intellectual. He was the he was a dean of Howard Law School for um, a brief period, and he was widely known to be the first African-American man to graduate from Harvard College in 1870. However, by the time that Belle Green was a teenager, the family had relocated to New York, and I was able to discover, doing various types of in-depth archival research, that her parents had separated and her mother had begun passing as white. She began telling people that, you know, her people knew who her husband was, um, but she would tell people that she herself was white. Um, and by 1900, Belle Green and all four of her siblings crossed the color line. So for Belle Green's entire adult life, she passed. And when we think about passing, some a topic that has received a lot of attention recently, in part because of Rebecca Hall's film adaptation on Netflix of Nella Larson's novel um, published in 1929, Passing. You know, it's important to remember that even in the North, America was a deeply segregated and racist country. This was the era of Jim Crow. And there were tremendous barriers that African-American men and women faced, not just in terms of career advancement, but in terms of voting rights, in terms of housing, um, you know, we could have a whole <laughs> we could have a whole podcast episode about all of those things. Um, but Bell Green, they, they changed their last name from Greener to Green with an E, and Bell Green and several of her siblings adopted the middle name Da Costa and told people that they were Portuguese or that they were of Portuguese descent. And so Belle Green's story is fascinating because it's the story of a woman who really reached the very, very pinnacle of her career. I think she was probably the greatest librarian scholar of the 20th century, but it is also a story of a woman who overcame incredible amounts of adversity, but who also you know, was sort of forced by society to pass as white in order to achieve her successes. So Daria, I have a lot of questions for you, but a lot of what you just said really harkens back to the research that I found on Belle de Costa Green, which is pretty exclusively from the Morgan Library website. First of all, I want to backtrack and I want to talk about you said that you were part of this project transcribing these letters and these records. I'm curious if you also had a hand in the knowledge that's accessible on the website, because um, I feel like a lot of that was really verbatim of what I took in through the research accessible online. Absolutely. 
So the Morgan is planning an exhibition devoted to Belle Green for 2024. 2024 will mark the centenary of the founding of the Morgan Library as a public institution. It was incorporated with Belle Green at its helm in 1924. So the Letters Project is sort of one component of the exhibition program. And the idea is that the Letters Project, you know, um, the Morgan, we were working with Harvard with Villa Itatti, which is the center for the study of Italian Renaissance culture, which is in Florence. And there's going to be a, a website sort of hosted by the Morgan and Itatti that's going to make all of these letters um, publicly available, searchable, etc. But when these fictional accounts of Belle Green's life emerged, and one of them was featured, it was chosen as a Good Morning America book club pick. So people really became interested and they started contacting the Morgan with questions. Who was she? Where can we go for information? You know, there really, um, there were no resources about her life that people could access. And so we created these sort of pages that, these web pages that introduced her, that talked about the letters, that talked about some of her professional achievements just to be able to give people sort of a baseline understanding of who she was and what the arc of her career looked like. Yeah. I, one, found it very interesting, specifically the information accessible online, because I I was curious about the main content that was curated for Belle de Costa Green. But of course, the Morgan Library's what I feel like people are coming there for is the archives. So I am kind of curious in terms of, before I get into my next question for you is, do you find now that information about Bell is coming out, that people are coming to the Morgan Library to learn exclusively about her? Or is it still really the the main kind of um, attraction is the intensive archive that the library has to offer? I think... The hope is that Morgan can become a place where people who are interested in Belle Green and want, you know, have a hunger for learning more about her can go. I think it's in the works that there will be a permanent installation of some kind, a permanent exhibition dedicated to Belle Green. That's not the case now. And for decades, you could go to the Morgan and there really was there were maybe an image or two of Belle Green, but there wasn't her presence, I think, wasn't felt very strongly. But I hope that that will change. And I think that people at the Morgan also hope that will change. Daria, I am wondering if you can speak to the relationship that Bell had as this kind of founder of a major U.S. museum and how she was initiated and how she came into this role. So her first point of contact with the Morgan family was when she was working at Princeton, at the Princeton University Library, probably as a cataloger. We don't know exactly what her position was, but in all likelihood, she was a cataloger or a clerk of some sort. And J.P. Morgan's nephew, Junius Spencer Morgan, who was an alum, an alumnus of Princeton um, and a bibliophile, (laughs) an ardent bibliophile. He had the he amassed the greatest collection of Virgiliana in the United States, 
which he gave to Princeton throughout his life, um, he was serving as the associate librarian there. And he, in 1905, he basically recommended Bell Green to his uncle. Pierpont Morgan collected everything. Whatever you can possibly think of, he collected it. But he really became a book and manuscript collector um, in the late 1890s. And by 1905, when construction on his library on site at the Morgan, so that's on East 36th Street, um, as that was nearing completion, he was he was looking to hire a librarian, a professional librarian to work with him, to build his collection, to catalog his collection, to liaise with scholars. And so Junius recommended Bell and in, sorry, this is like a little point, but I really try not to say Bell. I always try to say green because something that I noticed whenever we, we refer to people like JP Morgan, we always say Morgan, but whenever we refer to women, oftentimes we refer to them by their first names. And so unless I'm speaking about Pierpont and Junius, which with the Morgans, one sort of has to do because there are so many JPs and so many Juniuses in the family. I really try to refer to Belle Green as Green, just as sort of a small way of underscoring the fact that she was just as important a player in the history of the Morgan and in its institutional development as all of these white men. So Belle Green was introduced to Pierpont Morgan in 1905. She was hired as his assistant librarian. And by late 1906, she was the librarian uh, with her own assistant librarian, Ada Thurston. She went on to become J.P. Morgan's chief consultant in all bibliographic matters. She basically had a carte blanche to buy anything she saw fit at pretty much any price. She would go to Europe, meet with all of the most important dealers, go to the most important auctions, negotiate, and she was a fierce negotiator. <laughs> but she would also work with scholars so that they had access to the collection, so that they could publish parts of the collection. Following Pierpont Morgan's death in 1913, she then went on to continue to serve sort of as family, the Morgan family librarian, in a sense, working for J.P. Morgan's son, Jack. So there was a an 11-year period when she was working with Jack before the Morgan Library or the Pierpont Morgan Library, as it was then known, was formally incorporated. Um, one of the most interesting things that I learned about Belle Green was just how frequently she was being consulted by other directors, curators, definitely, but really directors, as other institutions, institutions that we might sort of consider sister institutions, were being formed in the first half of the 20th century. And by this, I mean the Frick Collection, the Huntington, the Walters in Baltimore. She, was even, she would even be consulted by people at the Metropolitan Museum of Art asking, about what kind of salaries she she paid her employees. Um, you know, she was sort of an expert on cultural institutions themselves. And 
So I think that when we think about her influence and her legacy, it's much larger than just the Morgan Library. Of course, she shaped the collection probably more than any other individual. She shaped the direction that the Morgan Library followed as a scholarly research institution. And she shaped you know, the kinds of educational programs that it offered from the very beginning. She was hosting lectures and bringing in um, graduate seminars and uh, all sorts of different societies would come and visit and she would speak to them. All of these sort of ideas of hers and all of these practice, all of these practices that she adopted that are now very much central to the missions of most cultural institutions, you know, were sort of disseminated out from her across the country. And I certainly hope that the exhibition will be able to really bring that to the fore. And listening to you describe the extent of her work that also, as you said, surpasses this collection and surpasses this institution, it goes beyond that, is just even more astonishing to me when I think about her erasure from the canon in which she built. So I have a somewhat of an interesting question for you. And this is also coming from a person who didn't know of this historical figure before having you on the show and learning about you and your research as well. But in doing my own little research about Green, two common questions came up when you just Google her name. One is, was she a real person? Which I think you kind of spoke to a little bit of the fictional books and also transcribing some of the actual letters that we have from her. There seems to be a little bit of uncertainty uncertainty there. And the second is, was she black? Which is what you also spoke to with her being white passing. So I think that these questions are very transparent and the erasure of black icons in Western history. However, again, I think her specific erasure is so fascinating when knowing her legacy now and when knowing specifically her ties to the Morgans, which is a family who has a huge lasting legacy today. And also coming from from what you described, a pretty established background herself. I think also in terms of entertainment and, you know, we love a good historical story and we use that to our advantage in entertainment and pop culture. Her story really lends itself well to somewhat of a social climber. And I'm like, how have we not had like a show about this? Because I'm like Netflix loves an underdog. Like we love a social climber. Like that is really specific content that modern audiences consume. So I find that's super interesting. On top of all of that, I have been thinking about the movie Nope that just came out. And I went to go see that a couple weekends ago. And it is specifically about the erasure of Black icons within cinema. But I've been thinking about this so much. And it pinpoints on the idea of the first motion picture and how the first motion picture was a horse and of a Black jockey right? And how we don't know who this black jockey is and how we have to specifically make up this story. And that's the whole point of Nope is even though this is a fictitious film about aliens, we are still rewriting black people into the narrative because we have nothing else to go off of. So 
if it's fictional, who cares? At least we're writing ourselves back into the story. So in terms of, you know, we love a good pop historical mashup. I'm curious about, literally, I just asked you 10 questions. I apologize. Just tell me your thoughts, Daria. <laughs> Gianna, I am grueling. Worlds colliding. And we have like the timeliness of a fantastic Jordan Peele motion picture out. Oh my God. This is just I, like Juice. You know what I was thinking today? I had a phone call at work and I'm like, Gianna, you're very long winded and you need to not, you need to not <laughs> be that. And here I am asking you 10 questions. So it was I just, worry. I just want you to know, I want you to know that I know it. <laughs> I, 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 I you know because I was like, I'm not going to be able to remember all of these. So I did grab a pencil and jot a few of them down because they were all she excellent questions. Whole juice box over you is what she <laughs> So hold my juice box. I just feel as though there there is a lot of mysticism about her. And maybe you feel that way. Maybe you don't because you are at the forefront of this research. But, but how do you feel? Well, I think the question of her erasure, I think, might be a bit strong but at least partial erasure from history, certainly from sort of the New York cultural canon is very real. I say this because I have this article right next to me. So this is from the New York Times. So when Ellen Futter retired as the director of the Natural History Museum in New York, she was a long serving director there. I, I noticed this because I thought about Belle Green. There's a little, you can see right here, I sort of marked it. This is a quote that's pulled out from the article. The first woman to head a major museum based in New York City. And I thought to myself, that is Belle Green. You know, that's the, and that's the New York Times. So, <laughs> um, so I think there is still a ways to go in terms of recuperating her reputation and reinstating her place in in various in the history of libraries, in the history of um, the Morgan itself, in the history of New York cultural institutions. Was she a real person? Yes, <laughs> she was a real person, but. There are certainly aspects of her life that I think she herself fictionalized. And so that leads to a lot of ambiguity. And in some ways, I think that's part of the reason why her life story is quite so ripe for fiction writers, you know, to delve into. I should add, fiction writers make me so jealous. They are unencumbered by facts and they get to use the powers of their imagination. It's really, it's a great- Must be nice. You get it, exactly. That's what I hear. Um, what, what a bunch no. of losers. <laughs> <laughs> we have to sit over here writing stupid facts and like yes, about, about artists really... that like we'll, we'll never know are actually true, but we're just gonna write them down as if they are facts. Like, <laughs> here's my hypothesis. I have a lot of supporting evidence, but I will never be able to give you a 100% guarantee. I'm just gonna spin it like I can. Yes. So. So with Belle Green's life, you know, part of the reason that there are these fictional aspects, like she sort of would always give slightly different stories about where she was from. Was she born in Washington, D.C.? Was she born in Virginia? Sometimes she would just say she was born in the South. Um, who were her parents? The family disassociated themselves from Richard T. Greener, the father. But interestingly, Richard T. Greener, who 
was appointed by President William McKinley to a consular post in Vladivostok, Siberia. <laughs> it's just it's a wild um, thinking about going to Vladivostok at the turn of the at the turn of the twentieth century. Although it was a very important diplomatic spot, um, you know, historically speaking, at that time. Um, but Richard T. Greener, who went on basically to have a second family, he had three children with um, a Japanese woman. In his Harvard Alumni Bulletin, for the entirety of his life, he listed his family members, including Belle Green. I mean, as Belle Greener, but that was one of the ways that Gene Strauss, who wrote sort of the defining biography of J.P. Morgan, was able to connect the dots and discover or uncover or recover, in a sense, who was Belle DaCosta Green. Well, she was born Belle Marion Greener. And on her birth certificate, she's listed as colored. And I think this leads to the next question, was she black? According to American US law at the time, so that is the one drop, you know, so race is defined by one drop. So you have one drop of African-American blood, you are black. So according to those standards, yes, she was black. We have no idea how she viewed herself. We have no idea how she defined herself racially speaking. In public documents, so on her passport, in census records, she's always listed she or listed herself as white. But I have never found any kind of statement, written account, in which she talks about her own racial identity. So I think it's very difficult to say, um, and people are interested, you know, I mean, it, it's a very compelling question. It's a question we, everyone wants to know the answer to, but it's also fundamentally unanswerable. Did I, am I missing? I feel like I may be missing a few things. Oh, it's perfection. Like this is like, <laughs> oh my gosh, this is wildly fascinating as we uh, like to say. Daria, basically, I just want you to produce the Netflix series on oh, this. this. Yes. So yeah. I should add. So there That's is... really what I was getting to. I'm just waiting for you to tell us your big news. Right, like, um, is this, like, an, an exclusive, like, with, with Netflix? It is not an exclusive, but I will say, so there are two writers who co-wrote a fictional account of Belle Green called The Personal Librarian. And apparently, now I forget which, but a production company apparently, like, optioned the rights for that book and are planning on turning the fictional account uh-huh. into, you know, into some kind of, I don't know if it's with Netflix, but into some kind of uh-huh. production. Right. Um, if I'm being perfectly honest, I'm sort of torn about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, on the one hand, I feel that the more attention paid to Belle Green, the better. Because I think that her story needs to be told. I think it's an empowering story, but it's also a story that reveals some of the underside of the history of this nation. Mm-hmm. But I also think that she deserves, in a sense, better. Uh, for sure. You know, fiction is great, and it's a wonderful conduit for telling stories, but her own life is so fascinating. It doesn't really need embellishment. And I also think that 
you know, some of these fictional accounts really focus on her personal life. And she had a fascinating personal life. I mean, everything about Belle Green is fascinating. <laughs> but I also think that her professional achievements, wonderfully fascinating and deserve equal, if not more, attention. Ah, uh, so many thoughts. <laughs> They're well, all ping-ponging in my head. I know. You had mentioned a little bit about this paramour that she had um, in Italy. And I, I don't want to... Um, tackle that topic for today because I think exactly to your point, I am so excited to hear about the legacy that this woman had for our field of study and your career and your research. And I think it's she's so impactful as a professional. And so I, I as we're talking about this, I can already see like the romantic drama unfolding in this. You know? I do want to say one thing though, which I think is important. So Belle Green and Bernard Berenson were correspondents for 40 years, and they were romantically involved at the beginning. He was in basically what we would today call an open marriage. But some of the letters are really amorous and emotive, um, like really over the top in a sense, in a great way when you're reading them. But there's also so much intellectual depth in the correspondence that I think to simplify their relationship as one that is purely amorous in nature is a disservice to both of them. And that was something that really came through in the letters. Because, of course, mm -hmm. once the sort of passion had faded, there, they, there were decades still of correspondence. Oh, I want to uh, I want to move on to some other questions. And, um, you know, as soon as this, this show comes out, we'll have a watch party. And when the exhibition <laughs> comes out, we will... We will have the expert to evaluate the exhibition for us. But now you work at Sotheby's in their old master paintings department. And at APT, um, we are always fascinated in how people navigate careers in the field of art history. We also have listeners who have reached out to us. Um, they've talked about their careers in auction houses and how they have interest in auction houses um, in this field of study, in this potential career. So can you give us the kind of insider scoop on the auction world? How did you find the move from museums, archives, libraries to auctions? So I've been at Sotheby's now since January. So about seven months or just maybe eight months now. It has been some of the most exhausting yet exhilarating months of my life. Two things really stick out. Number one, I always thought that I was an objects-based art historian in that I really tried to focus, you know, to draw narratives out of the works of art themselves. Of course, I also loved archival research and, you know, was able to really delve into that when I was working on my dissertation in particular. Then I got to an auction house and now I understand being an object-based art historian is. Much of the time, all we have is the object. It comes to us with no name. It, it, it really it is just solving a mystery. And the only clue we have is the work of art. So we have to look at it and examine it in every possible way. You know, try to like get everything we can out of it. And that takes very close and sustained, careful looking which I love, but that is a, it, 
as I say, I didn't really understand what being an object-based art historian meant. The other, the other thing is the pace. It is breakneck. It is, and I think back, I'm like, wow, museum work. Very, like there's something that seems so leisurely about having four years to organize an exhibition with, let's say it's a really large exhibition, so 100, 150 loans. Our sales have 100, 150 objects in them, and we hold sales multiple times a year. And we are cataloging every single one of those works. Perhaps not to the absolute depth that curators do for museum catalogs, but yeah, the speed is breakneck. I never, I have never been a fast writer. I am now, purely out of necessity, a fast writer. So I kind of want to go off of that a little bit because you're already talking about like work culture and vibe and adaptation. <laughs> so I just am extremely curious because it's been different for a lot of different folks that we've talked to. Some of them, you know, are going back to museums and, and they feel like it's healthy and or and they've left an auction house. So I'm just wow. curious for for you and in your experience in terms of essentially what has been your healthiest work environment? Is it Sotheby's? Is it the auction house? Or are we still adjusting? (laughs) I do think that I am in a unique department in that. So I'm in the old masters department, old master paintings department at Sotheby's. I think it is a particularly collegial and collaborative department. So I cannot speak to auction houses at large. I cannot even speak to Sotheby's at large. In fact, I'm sure we are an anomaly, but it is a fantastic work environment. There is so much knowledge, but there's also, as I say, it's deeply collaborative. And I love that. I, I wrote my dissertation on Andrea Del Sarto, but on the way that he collaborated with other artists. So collaboration is very near and dear to my heart. Every single painting that comes in, we look at all together and discuss. Every time we're doing evaluation, we do it together. You know, I, for instance, will do the preliminary research and then perhaps we'll like do the write-up eventually, but we are always discussing and questioning. (laughs) Um, You know, it's not that we agree on things all the time, but I find it a really engaging way to learn. And there can be, you know, oftentimes museum work is collaborative in certain ways, but there are many parts about it that are much more solitary in nature. So for me personally, I really like that aspect, that approach in the auction world. I will say that when I was making, considering the move, making the move, I was very much aware of the fact that there is more fluidity now between museums, auction houses, galleries, you know, people move back and forth. It's a much more porous relationship. Whereas in the past, I think it was sort of like you were in your lane and that was it. You couldn't change lanes. Um, And I think that is really beneficial because I think that people develop different types of skills depending on the type of institution where they're working. And I think that sort of cross-pollination is wonderful. You know, people in auction houses see so much. It's, it's amazing. And they have memories that are 
like lock boxes. I don't understand. The chairman of our department, he'll be like, oh, this painting, it came up, you know, in 1986 and sold for X amount of money. But then, of course, you know, in a museum context, you have people who excel at really deep scholarly research. Not that auction houses don't do that. In fact, auction houses now do that much more than they used to. But so, yes, I think that the more that people can work together across institutions, the better. What a novel art historical analysis. I mean, that <laughs> fluidity in, in career paths uh, makes us all better learners. Wild. Um, <laughs> Here at APT, we do love to end with a uh, fun kind of poppy, if you will, question. And you just mentioned your dissertation. And Gianna and I just had to ask. I mean, you're, you're the perfect guest. It only seems fitting that we ask a Renaissance professional, what did you think of Beyonce's Renaissance album? Oh, my gosh. This is so embarrassing. I haven't listened to it. we totally put you on the spot literally last night it was nine o'clock at night and i was like been exposed i I was like i have to ask her this question and i like typed it but i was thrilled that she chose renaissance as the name for her album i will say that and i will also say that so much of her imagery is carefully considered and art historically informed Mm. and i think it's amazing the way that she chooses you know where she does her shoots i mean that whole video that was in the louvre yeah ape shit mm-hmm. like everything about that was fantastic i find that very exciting mm-hmm. you know in the old masters world we're always talking about ways of showing people that old masters are contemporary mm-hmm. even though they're called old masters a million percent terrible name for them we need to rebrand i don't know what like to what but we need a rebrand i mean just hire beyonce like yeah pro- you know she probably comes cheap um i'm sure we can like, afford her yeah no biggie no biggie uh beyonce will be the old masters rebrand and i am here for it you know if you do decide to listen to it please uh let us know and we can do a little instagram post with like daria's renaissance <laughs> fabulous i do plan on listening to it i just I think that's all that we have for you. We want to be respectful of your time. Daria, thank you so, so much for joining us on the podcast. I really feel like the most fanciest art historical journalist that there has ever been. (laughs) I am so delighted. It was a real pleasure for me to speak with the two of you. As I say, I think the more people that know about and learn about Belle Green, the better. And so I... I could talk about her until the cows come home. So it was <laughs> well, a real treat. Please, please come back and uh, we can we, we can talk some more in 2023. <laughs> or t- whatever, 24. <laughs> when, whenever, whatever it happens. <laughs> Quincy's like, on that. <laughs> Quincy's like, I am not sure. Quincy's like, <laughs> mom. <laughs> Well, Daria, thank you again so much for being with us. We appreciate you coming on the pod. For everybody listening, wherever you are at, thank you for joining us. And we will talk to you all in two Tuesdays. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. Art Pop Talk's executive producers are me, Bianca Martucci-Fink. And me, Gianna Martucci-Fink. 
Music and sounds are by Josh Turner, and photography is by Adrian Turner. And our graphic designer is Sid Hammond.